The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. This week on The Horse Race, it's planes, trains, and automobiles, but in reality, buses and trains. We've got transit on the brain and political shenanigans in New Hampshire on the menu. It's Thursday, April 27th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, here with my co-hosts Lisa Kaczynski and Steve Kazella. We are back from our one-week school vacation hiatus, ready to bust out of the starting gates, I guess, with renewed energy and vigor. Who wrote this? I have no energy, but Steve, Lisa, I am energized to see both of your lovely faces back in this here virtual pod bunker. We're energized to hear you read the horse puns that somebody kindly put in the script for you. <laughs> Bursting out. Of, <laughs> this is a trap. <laughs> Bursting out of the starting gates. Um, no, it is good to be back. We did miss you all next uh, last week. I missed um, you both, Lisa and Jen, last week. Uh, Lisa, best I can tell from your background, you're actually back in Massachusetts. Am I imagining things? Temporarily, yes. I have returned uh, to the Great Bay State, but soon enough and possibly when you're listening to this here pod, I will be back in New Hampshire for uh, former President Donald Trump's first visit um, since the end of January, I think. You have been absolutely crushing all things New Hampshire and 2024. Why? Why was I reading about New Hampshire once again in Playbook? Massachusetts this morning. It was very interesting. Don't take that the wrong way. But why was I reading about New Hampshire? The real reason you're reading about New Hampshire is because President Joe Biden has launched his reelection bid, uh, long anticipated. But it comes with some wrinkles, not in Massachusetts, but in New Hampshire, where the primary calendar is still in flux. There's this looming June deadline for the state to change its state law to change its primary date. Uh, and stay in the early window. And if they don't, and they go rogue, the president faces a tough choice. Does he flout his own rules and situation that he created by putting his name on the ballot in what was and could still be the first in the nation primary state? Or does he skip campaigning in New Hampshire entirely? It's an awkward spot. And that's what we were digging into playbook. And Lisa, just remind everybody um, what the state law is that you're referring to. I mean, it's basically... New Hampshire has to go first, right? They've passed a law that says they must go first. Yeah, New Hampshire, the Secretary of State sets the primary date. And per that state law, it has to be one week before any other state's primary, which means if the DNC wants to have South Carolina go first in February, New Hampshire could make theirs in January, could make it as early as December 2023. They can do whatever they want to stay ahead. Whether that's sanctioned or not is a different story. And what would the practical implications of that be if they did go in a way that the DNC didn't want them to? They've already talked about sanctioning not just the state in terms of delegates, state Democrats in terms of delegates to the convention, but also possibly the candidates. And that's now something that 
the president and his campaign are going to have to grapple with. Um, they kind of told me in this ambiguous way that, you know, they're keeping watch on this. They're hoping New Hampshire doesn't jump the line, but they're preparing in case it does and that they will abide by any DNC sanctions against candidates who break the rules. But that doesn't that isn't clear about whether that means they will or won't campaign in New Hampshire. But that's basically the test that every candidate is going to have to go through on the Democratic side at this point, because on the Republican side, it is still the first primary. The calendars are set differently, and that's set in stone. This whole thing is kind of dumb, to be honest. Like the fact that the DNC has to be held up by what some particular state chose to pass into their own law, that they can't set their own primary calendar. I mean, I've written about this. I wrote about it for NHPR a few years back, um, looking at the electorates in New Hampshire and Iowa. And basically, it's fine for the Republicans if it's New Hampshire and Iowa, because they're both super white electorates. One's more conservative. One's a bit more moderate in New Hampshire. For um, for Democrats, it's really not great. You know, it's very liberal, very white, and just not an electorate really that is a great representation of what the Democratic Party is, particularly if it's going to go first every single cycle like it has. The fact that you kind of have to go through that gate is not a good thing for the Democratic Party. And, you know, kind of being held up by the fact that New Hampshire is digging in their heels and basically throwing a tantrum about this law that they passed, I think is kind of wild. You know, it's not really something also that voters across the country should have to put up with. The fact that they never get to be the gatekeeper and the voters in New Hampshire always get to be the gatekeeper is not something that I think is all that good for democracy. The one one wrinkle I will throw in this before we move on to the rest of our very packed show is that right now it's the Republicans who are actually holding up this law change, whether or not Democrats want to change the law in New Hampshire. The fact that Republicans control the legislature and the governor's office there the Democrats would have to go through them, and they're the ones sticking in the heels right now. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about with one of our favorite topics, right, Jen? So what are we doing here today? Well, I mean, we're going to ask ourselves, why are we here? And I think we'll add in our usual, and why is it so hard for me to get there anywhere else? Because we're talking about the MBTA and regional transit agencies today. Uh, why are the buses so slow? Why are the trains so slow? Why may I never leave my Dorchester apartment again? Let's find out, shall we? All good questions. All aboard. My deepest sympathies go out to anyone using public transit this week, month, year, maybe lifetime. We've got some movement on leadership, MBTA board members, and announcements about a whole lot of slow zones and repair work. So here to join us to talk through the state of the MBTA is Jared Johnson of Transit Matters. Jared, thanks for joining us, and how's your commute these days? Thanks for having me, and um, you know, I hope no one's going to throw anything at me. My commute is is all right, most days uh, I am on. I'm on the Green Line extension, so uh, it's 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 the newest part of the system. So it shouldn't have any excuses uh, to be to be bad. But um, but yeah, I I definitely sympathize with folks. Anytime I have to sort of go somewhere other than uh, downtown Boston from my house, it can be uh, quite the grueling expedition. 
Yeah, I uh, wrote in on the Orange Line this morning, and that's just been such a such a treat <laughs> the last few months. It's like you, I race down there. I see 15 minutes for the next train and 20-plus for the train after that. And I'm at Oak Grove, and the whole platform's already crammed with people. Um, and I just feel a little soft spot in my heart for anybody waiting at assembly thinking that they're going to get on a train. Um, but that's kind of emblematic of a lot of what's going on across the system, which is, you know, service disruptions. We're hearing slow zones maybe with us for months. So put all this into perspective for us. Where's the MBTA right now service-wise compared to way, where it's been in, you know, say the last 10 years or so? Are things worse now or is the, has it always been this bad and we just haven't noticed? No, no. I mean, service is, is significantly um, service is significantly worse. You know, I, I think, you know, during rush hour, you know, it's, it's, it's probably about 50 to 50 to 60 in some cases, maybe even 70% lower than what it would be, um, you know, during a, during a normal rush hour. And, you know, a big part of that is the, uh, you know, is the lack of investment, uh, particularly the investment in people, um, the, you know, Baker administration spent a lot of time on some of the capital projects, but not as much in people. And we're, we're, we're seeing the, uh, the effects of that. So we don't have enough uh, bus operators. Uh, we don't have enough dispatchers to run uh, trains, you know, as safely as the as the FTA would would like. And so uh, there's been a dramatic reduction in service. So no, you know, you know, the service is is definitely worse. Can we piece apart, I'd love to at least try, uh, the kind of psychological impacts of the extended slow zones, these safety changes, the shuttles constantly from kind of the practical impact? Like, what does it feel like for our system p- to be this bad? But then also, what is it doing to the state's ability to make the case for habitability, competitiveness, attractiveness, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've heard just you know just immense frustration from a lot of a lot of writers. You know, I've heard people say, you know, um, oh gosh, I, I I you know I didn't realize it was going to be this slow. I've heard about it being slow. I didn't realize it was going to be this slow. I'm just going to drive in next. You know. Um, or, you know, I, I've heard, um, you know, uh, what's the state rep told me about uh, one of his constituents uh, that calls him, you know, frequently to say, hey, you know, like these slow zones are really having a big impact on my life. You know, I, it's, that's, that's the, you know, the slow zone is determined about whether or not I'm, I'm home to, you know, tuck my, my kid in bed at night. And so, um, you know, it's absolutely, um, you know, having a, a huge impact on workers, especially when you think about, you know, um, you think about shift workers um, who get penalized if they're if they're they're late, they lose money, um, or you know just anybody who's been in a tough, grueling job and now has to add an extra you know twenty uh, to forty five minutes or more to their commute. It certainly has an impact. Um, but you know when you sort of you know zoom out and, and try to sort of quantify it, it absolutely has a huge impact. I mean, I think it's putting up a giant sign that says "Don't." you know, don't relocate your business here. You know, I think it is encouraging uh, people who are already, you know, feeling a crunch because of, you know, uh, high rents. It's encouraging them to say, you know what, I'm just going to move to, you know, New Hampshire and maybe I'll just drive in or, you know, worse for our economy, I'm just going to move to Atlanta or Houston uh, or some other region. So it absolutely is having, um, you know, a huge impact. And I haven't done the the, the number crunching on this to be great if there was uh, someone way smarter than me at Harvard or somewhere who wants to do this, or Harvard or MIT that um, wants to calculate, you know, the lost productivity uh, that comes from uh, people being stuck on trains, that comes from companies uh, pushing back their meetings to 10 o'clock, 
Um, so it, you know, it, it absolutely has a big impact. And then, you know, I think the final, um, you know, impact I'll touch on just plenty more, but, you know, as for climate change, you know, there, there is no, there is no, there's no solution to climate change. There is no way that we can be, you know, responding to it meaningfully without a public transportation system that works. And so this is undermining um, all of the work that we've done on, on, on climate change to have a transit system that just encourages people to drive. So the Healy administration got off to a bit of a slow start when it came to making the leadership appointments that they had um, the ability to make, both in terms of the, the board and also in terms of just the top of the org chart. But there has been some movement this week. So let's just quickly touch on what's happened and what that means, starting at the top. So we heard that Philip Eng is now on the job as the new GM. What's your read on that appointment process and what are you watching for from him specifically? Yeah, you know, I mean, in an ideal world, you know, we would have loved to have had a general manager uh, earlier, but, you know, understand that there was probably, uh, probably took quite a bit of convincing uh, to get someone to take that role. And, you know, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I've got, you know, I've, I've got positive feelings and, you know, cautious optimism about, um, about you know, uh, the new general manager. And so, you know, if, if he turns out to be the, you know, the guy that can turn the system around, you know, the weight will have been well worth it but um <clears throat> you know i mean I, he's he, he comes from um you know the long island railroad with a um you know with a reputation for turning that system around and critically for having a really good relationship with workers and with labor uh and better communication with riders which i, I would argue are you know other than you know needing more funding from the legislature uh, those are the two biggest issues right you know the inability to to attract and re retain uh workers and some of the you know, recent kerfuffles with pensions and other things, uh, and then the communication with riders, riders really feeling just left out in the dark and, um, you know, um, diversions that have been poorly announced. So those are two things that I think are great. And then I think he's also bringing a, um, a you know, a sense of optimism that's, that's missing, partially because he hasn't been writing uh, the, you know, the tea before he got here. But, uh, but, you know, but in all seriousness, you know, he is saying, you know, you know, look, hold on, we're, we're going to make the system better, you know, we're, we're going to try to commit to some timelines. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's a good start, for sure. So pivoting from, you know, the one person at the top of the ticket, org chart, whatever it is, uh, to a whole bunch of people sitting at the board, uh, we're about 18 months, I think, into the new MBTA board, um, with some new additions now announced from Healy replacing three members uh, with three new members. So how has the board operated so far, in your view? And do these new appointments indicate some sort of positive change? Yeah, the, the the previous board. I mean, just be pretty frank. You know, the previous board was a reaction to the FMCB being very sorry. The former Fiscal Management Control Board, the board established after the snowstorm, um, you know, that sunset in 2021. Um, you know, that board was 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 very active. It was not afraid to sort of you know challenge the status quo and 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 push management and sort of you know you could start to see some daylight opening between. Um, you know, the, the, the Baker administration, the governor and, and this board. And I think, you know, the subsequent board was set up to be the opposite of that. And, and it had been, and, you know, I think you, you see from just the, the visceral uh, comments of the last board meeting, including people calling them evil. Um, and if I go that far, but, but, but I think the problem has been is that the pendulum swung too far from a board that was maybe a little too in the weeds sometimes. And, sort of caused, you know, some some tension with staff. 
to one that was just that that really felt checked out and that really felt asleep at the wheel at a time when the team was really in crisis and you know i think the fta engagement really underscores that that board was just not providing uh, the right level of oversight but i'm i'm really you know thrilled about the the appointments uh particularly two of them i don't i don't know um the um the gentleman who's going to be the safety expert but tom mcgee and tom um glenn are you know just two excellent excellent choices um and and you know tom glenn somebody who ran the system before um and and you know did a great job at, at massport and really expanding that agency uh and then with uh mayor mcgee with his role as as chair of the senate transportation committee um and i think that will certainly come in handy in trying to get the team more money but he is also somebody who um you know appreciates that we need to not only fix the system uh but we need to have a modernized um you know an, an expanded system if we're gonna really tackle climate change and so I think he's really well suited to make sure that the T is striking that that right balance between, of course, prioritizing, you know, first safety, then reliability, but not not forgetting about uh, the fact that we have, you know, environmental justice communities that are that are underserved. The fact that we have trains and you know probably a few hundred million, probably close to a billion, you know, square feet of development um, going up going around in the region, and we need to have a T that can. Um, you know that that is commiserate with that of course there's also major policy issues that the board and leadership in general are going to have to deal with and to a certain extent the legislature if we want to have some of these things actually happen and one of the big ones that's getting a lot of publicity these days of course is fares um, some proposals out there would make fares free entirely. We also have a proposal that from the Healy administration that would just do means testing basically. So where are we with this right now? Where do you see this whole issue heading? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think means tested fares. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, you know, throw it out there that, it, that it, I think it, it is going to happen. Like there is, there is, um, you know, a real push and some really great work uh, happening behind the scenes at the, at the T, and, and staff are really engaged on it. And the governor's put it, you know, in, uh, in the budget, and I believe it, it was in the House budget proposal uh, as well. So I think that is going to happen, and I think that will be, you know, huge. Fifty percent discount up to 300% of the federal poverty, uh, you know, line. So you won't have some of those cliff issues. Um, and I think it's it's really going to be huge. I mean, it's studied on before COVID, but I think a lot of it would still stand that, you know, a lot of times the um, uh, the, the low-income riders that were participating in the pilot rode at off-peak times. Um, and they, they, you know, they were going to, you know, in addition to, you know, going to, see family and friends and other cultural things, which, you know, everybody should do regardless of income. Um, they were going to doctor's appointments. You know, they were going to, to to job interviews. And so, you know, that really shows how much of a barrier uh, fares can be for uh, for a lot of low-income people and the ways that this could potentially save the state money uh, in, the, in the long run in terms of lower hospital bills and in terms of lifting people uh, out of poverty. So I think that that one is, is going to come to fruition. Free fares? That that one is is you know that that one I think there, there's there's a there's a lot more up in the air there I think it's you know it's been positive to see um, you know the the, um, the results from the from the city of Boston's um, from their pilot and I believe they're expanding it now into Cambridge particularly on the number one bus but I think the big question there is is figuring out the the, the, the fair revenue and figuring out um, you know can we both expand 
you know, the, the, the bus network, they're talking about the free fares for the bus. Can they expand the bus network? Can we invest in it uh, and do free fares? You know, I think that's still a question that's, that's, um, that, that's up in the air. And I think, um, you know, one of the challenges is going to be that, you know, you've got to really prove to riders that you are uh, able to meaningfully improve an investment system because, you know, a lot of the studies show that, you know, regardless of, of income, uh, people prefer um, more frequent, more reliable service over fares. And so thinking about the fare-free conversation, though, one thing that is kind of striking is that you have folks weighing in from sort of all levels of Massachusetts government here. You've got, of course, the local municipalities who have been kind of pushing for fare-free pilot programs. Uh, Worcester, of course, has extended uh, its fare-free uh, service on some of its bus lines. Michelle Wu has been pushing for that. Uh, and then at the state level, you have more of the appetite for means testing. But then you've also got, you know, the congressional delegation as well. So what are you seeing the kind of presence or role here for federal officials being? Yeah, I mean, I think the you know there there's a big opportunity to think about how um, how the federal government can can provide operating revenue for large agencies. That was something that I think was one of the biggest things to happen during the pandemic. Um, I think it was a little bit underreported, but um, there's been a sort of a, a an, an informal rule since the Reagan administration uh, that the federal government does not pay for operating funding for large transit agencies you know they'll they'll give you the money to build the rail line but you know you've got to figure out where you're going to get the drivers from um and so you know by by making that change during COVID, that and that, that really sort of um you know that really sort of changed the paradigm and so you know i think that uh, the federal government could have a role in providing that 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 lost revenue i know that the um uh that um senator markey and and um, Rep. Presley recently, you know, filed a bill that would provide, you know, um, grant funding for agencies that want to do, um, you know, free fares, um, but then would also require them to, you know, uh, to state what sorts of improvements they're doing at the same time. But yeah, I mean, I think that would be that would be the role is to is to make sure that you know if agencies want to do this, um, you know, they can be made whole, and I think playing a a, a role in making sure that. You know, when we do have free fares, we're not, um, you know, sort of, you know, we're not having agencies sort of do it as a, um, you know, a cynical move to avoid, you know, investing in the system, but to say, you know, yes, do these free fares, we're going to make you whole, but we're also going to um, ask you to state how are you going to improve the service uh, at the same time. And I think that's a great role for the federal government. I think for uh, the last question before we let you go uh, is almost a little lightning round thing. We've got the three legs of the MBTA here. We got the subway, we got the commuter rail, we got bus systems, right? So to you, what's kind of the biggest challenge and the biggest potential opportunity to kind of improve service quality in each of those legs? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge with with, with bus, we'll start with bus, is that you know being a being a bus being a bus operator is is hard you know you are driver cashier bouncer social worker tour guide and probably a few other things as well um, and so you know um, we we really have to think about how we're making that job better um, things like bus lanes which take away the stress um, figuring out how we can work with municipalities and even private businesses to to make sure that operators have restrooms. Um, you know, uh, figuring out how we are making being a bus driver from a salary perspective and from a, a work hours and 
ability to choose your location to make that a great job from day one. And what about the subway systems? With the subway, uh, I think it is, you know, the challenge is pretty obvious. In addition to the dispatchers, which I'm, I'm hoping will be solved soon, although we're, we're, you know, very quickly coming up on a year of the uh, the reduced headways. But um, the challenge is, is, the, is the track and the, and the, the, just the condition of that infrastructure, you know, it's, it's just not been maintained as well as it could have for the last, you know, 25, 30 years. And so this is a, a bipartisan, multi-administration, uh, you know, issue here. Uh, and so, you know, figuring out how we make that system more reliable is really the, the you know, this is the name of the game. And I think the opportunity as we are fixing the system, um, hopefully we're also able to modernize some of the stations uh, and able to sort of use some of the technology um, to, you know, make, make riders experience better, right? And so how can we think about uh, a particularly crowded stations, you know, um, platform screen doors perhaps, or some kind of thing to make sure that, that folks are safe and aren't getting onto the rails, the trash isn't going onto the track and, and you know, causing delays and track fires. Uh, how do we use technology that maybe allows people to see how crowded the train is so they can, or how crowded each car is so they can move move around to different vehicles and things like that. So I think that's a huge opportunity there. Let's finish up with commuter rail. With commuter rail, I think a big challenge is that the commuter rail has significantly diversified its ridership and I believe is the the highest percentage return of any commuter rail network um, in the country. And that has come partially because of the I'd argue partially because of the, the the sort of the clock-based headway. So most of the lines are roughly hourly. There's some you know odds and ends here and there, but roughly hourly. And there's a lot more service during the middle of the day. The tension, however, is, is that as people are coming back to the office, there are folks that are you know understandably a little upset that if they miss their 5:20 train, they're waiting until 6:20. Um, but the problem is that you know there is a um, you know there's a shortage of coaches and locomotives. Um, and, and, you know, challenges with, you know, the schedule and getting in and out of such state, all, all of these different um, challenges that make it really hard to, to both, um, you know, run that hourly service and increase peak headways. And then you also have the challenge of, you know, should we be buying, you know, more diesel locomotives and more unpowered, um, you know, coaches when we really should be transforming the system, which, you know, dovetails into the opportunity, which is that we have 300 miles of right of way stretching all the way up from the New Hampshire, you know, state line down into Providence and halfway across the state. You know, we have an opportunity if we electrify that system, if we have reasonable fares, if we have trains every 15 minutes to just totally transform the geography of, of, intral and, of central and eastern Massachusetts and really shrink the distance, you know, between Boston and the gateway cities, you know, make um, more job opportunities for low-income folks and also provide economic development for, for gateway cities and get people out there. So that, I think, is the biggest opportunity we have to do mode shift and get people out of their cars. Fantastic. Well, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much for being with us, Executive Director of Transit Matters, Jared Johnson. Thanks for having me. Let's ride away from the MBTA for a moment, out into the far-flung regions of our state, where they don't have to complain about our subway system because they don't have it. Instead, regional transit authorities are picking up the slack in a big way. And Rich Parr, Senior Research Director at MassInc, 
you have polling on how people feel about using and funding these RTAs, don't you? Uh, we sure do. Hi, thank you for, uh, for having me. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk about a poll that we did in the end of February and into the start of March. Uh, it was about 1,400 people that we talked to statewide. And we did a little bit of oversampling in the RTA service areas, the towns that have these bus services that are outside of the T. So just for a level setting here, when we talk about an RTA, it's like the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority out in Western Mass where I live. It's like the Worcester Regional Transit Authority or SEPTA down in the Southeast. So there's about 15 of these different agencies that run bus service uh, in different parts of the state. They um, get funded by uh, a line item in the state budget. So um, that's, uh, that's the group that we're talking about here in terms of buses. Okay, well then, what were the top takeaways? Well, the top takeaways were that uh, residents statewide, not just in these RTA areas, but including closer in where the, where the T-service is, uh, really support the idea of giving these buses more, uh, uh, more money in order to provide more service for people. So we found 79% support for increasing the funding that these RTAs get from, this, from the state budget. We even uh, kind of put a specific number out there. Right now, the RTAs as a whole get $94 million from the state budget. They are asking to get that up to $150 million, and we tested that specifically. Um, and we found 69% support for that. So a little bit lower, right? You know, came down about 10 points, but still a majority. Uh, still, a pretty, still a pretty good number. Um, and then if you actually start getting into, like, how you would use this money. Um, people really liked the idea of using this money for bus and night uh, to, to increase the bus on the, on, at nights and on the weekends. That's one of the big knocks on the RTAs is that they don't provide service that goes very late into the night. They don't really run service on the weekends in some cases. So 79% uh, uh, of respondents liked that idea, supported giving them more money uh, for that. And then finally, if you put an actual uh, uh, allocation on it and say, what if we use this new income surtax that we have? Some people call it the fair share money or the millionaire's tax money. What if we used some of that money to basically do this? Uh, 74% statewide supported that idea. And so how are people using the RTAs? You mentioned wanting to possibly expand service. Are they using it for shopping, for work? Well, the people who are riding the bus right now, and it's definitely a minority, um, you know, the bus service is not the same as, you know, 80% of people are driving their car. In this survey, we're finding, you know, a, a much lower percentage who are, who are, who are riding. Um, they're using it for a lot of different purposes. We found that a majority of... Uh, current riders are using it for shopping and errands. Seventy-four percent said that they use the bus to do that. Sixty-two percent said that they use it to get to healthcare appointments. Sixty-one percent are taking using it to get to work. Fifty-seven percent are using it for going to visit their friends or family, and fifty-two percent are saying that they are using it to go out. So pretty much all these different uses that we were testing, the, the the current riders are really using the bus in a lot of different ways and have a lot of different destinations in mind. If you ask people who don't ride the bus what they would maybe like to use the bus for, it's kind of a similar, you see a similar pattern. Um, you know, the top thing for them is uh, shopping Shopping and errands. 40% of the non-riders right now are saying, yeah, I would use the bus. If it, You know, I wish I could use the bus to do that, but I can't do that right now. 36% um, are saying healthcare appointments. Um, and then in the 30s, again, for some of these other things. So lower numbers than we're seeing with the current riders, obviously, as you might expect. It's, you know, there's going to be some people who are just not going to want to ride the bus. 
but the but but the overall the message seems to be that there's a lot of different things that people are using the bus for. This is not just a work commute type of thing. If you're riding the if you're riding the bus, the demographics of the folks in this survey who are riding the bus are very different than than the overall population. They skew younger, more non-white. They're um, more likely to have lower levels of education and income. Uh, they're less likely to own a car, or they might only have one car in their household, and they're kind of sharing that car. So some people are using the car for one trip, and the other person's taking the bus. So there's a lot of different, there's, there's, there's a different dynamic at play here. The people who are currently riding the bus, particularly out in these RTA areas, really kind of need to use it for a lot of their, a lot of their travel. Um, whereas the folks who are not riding, because they have a car for other reasons, you know, um, the, the, the trick is what would get them to ride, what would be most important for them. Yeah, it was really striking looking at this in terms of um, the number that jumped out to me was uh, the folks who would like to use it for uh, accessing nightlife, for yeah. instance, which is especially difficult because, as you noted, a lot of these don't really go very late into the night. And we complain about this plenty in kind of greater Boston in terms of when the tea shuts down. But um, if you're thinking about all of the reasons that you want a robust transit system it basically should be, I think, based on these polls, uh, include serving all the reasons someone might want to live in a city. So so how are you looking at the polling in terms of potential usage and where these barriers are kind of impacting cities' abilities to grow and kind of become as robust uh, as they'd like to be? Yeah, I thought the nightlight thing was really interesting as well. So among the people who aren't riding right now, 35% of them, so a little more than a third, are saying, yeah, I would I would like to take the bus to go out, you know, whether that's to go out to eat or go out to a show or, you know, or, or later. And then among the current riders, 45% of those people are saying, I can't do this right now, I want to. So that suggests that there's really a latent demand there, I think, for um, increased, uh, you know, late night service. Um, even among the people who are currently taking the bus now, they're saying, this isn't, this is not available to me at this time. This is this is the top thing that they said that they would like to do more of with the bus. Um, in terms of how this, you know, how this would get used, I mean, I think this is valuable information for the debate on Beacon Hill right now about funding the RTAs. Um, we talk a lot about the MBTA as, uh, and rightfully so, because of the, the problems there, but the RTAs are serving a pretty big swath of the, of the state population. When you total it all up, it's about 60% of the state population lives in an RTA service area. That doesn't mean they're taking the bus. It means that they have access to that bus, right? Um, and, and we asked some questions about what would kind of move the needle in terms of getting people to ride more if there was some more money coming in, right? What would you use that money for? Um, and the top thing that people said was actually if you made the bus free, that they would be interested in riding it more. 50% said they'd be very willing to ride if the bus were free. That's everybody. That's including... Um, non-riders in that com and, and, and current riders. But that was the one that really sort of stood out in terms of um, making people most willing to ride. But after that, though, there were some that did, that, that did similarly well. 40% said, if, you got, if it got me to my location faster. 41% if it ran on time more reliably. 38% said, if it ran to more places than I, than I you know, need to get to. Um, so just it, you know, that's kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of providing transit service, right? You figure out where people need to go, you run a bus to that place, and then you run it often enough that people can actually rely upon it. And those are the kind of the basic things that if you put more money into, into the, the system and the RTAs, especially some of these RTAs, which are serving pretty far-flung and in some cases rural areas, 
um, getting a just getting a bus to out there with some level of frequency can be a challenge. Um, it, I can I can speak from experience out here in the Pioneer Valley where, yes, the Pioneer Valley Transit Agency is serving Holyoke, it's serving Springfield, it's serving Northampton, it's serving the colleges. But then you get out into the hill towns and you get out into some pretty far flung stuff, and it gets uh, and it gets hard to find a you know some people aren't even aware that they have a bus stop near them because the the service is pretty is pretty sparse. Well, this gives us a lot of fodder to watch as the House budget debate turns soon into a Senate budget debate and et cetera, et cetera. But for now, we have to leave it there. Uh, Rich Parr, Senior Research Director with Massing Polling Group. Thanks so much for walking us through this. You bet. And that brings us to our final segment tonight, which this week is from the Fires of Hell Department here at Horse Race Global Media Empire Headquarters. They advise us that it's time to get ready, or perhaps ready to avoid, SatanCon 2023. Jen, this is the intro that was written for me to read. What on earth am I talking about? Well, this weekend is, as you said correctly, SatanCon 2023, which is hosted by the Salem-based Satanic Temple. Um, And there's going to be a lineup of lectures, panels, entertainment, and quote-unquote a satanic marketplace at the Marriott Copley um, on the 28th through to the 30th. So um, if you feel like heading over and thinking about Satan, which Satanists point out is not the same thing as kind of, you know, the traditional theological concept of the devil, but a different sort of perspective on like a light bringer, uh, an educator, interesting thoughtful things, um, you can head over to SatanCon. The reason that it is in Boston, though, is because there's been a kind of continued dust up between the Satanic Temple and the Boston City Council, actually, where if you notice, if you watch any council meetings, they often start out with kind of remarks uh, from either local groups or local religious groups. And the way that this has worked historically is, and still does, is city councilors basically invite people from their districts to come and give these remarks, which sometimes can involve an opening prayer. And the Satanic Temple really wanted to give one of these opening remarks at the city council meetings, and they were refused. And they are in the midst right now of federal litigation over whether or not that was a violation of their free speech rights. So um, in case you're walking around near Copley Place and you see a bunch of people talking about, you know, a giant goat-headed figure, Uh, and you wonder why this is on your doorstep, it is because they are actively suing the city of Boston over their right to open city council meetings right now. I'm lost for words, Um, which is good (laughs) and timely because that actually is all the time we have to share our words for today. I'm Steve Kazellis signing off with Jennifer Smith and Lisa Kaczynski. Our producer, as always, is Adam Boyaji. Don't forget to give the horse race a review wherever you're hearing us now. Subscribe to both the Massachusetts Political Playbook and commonwealth magazine's daily download and reach out to us here at the massing polling group if you need polls or focus groups done for now thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week